nothing happens around the perimeter of a room. If you've been invited into a meeting, have a seat at the table. That's where the opinions will be shared and the decisions will be made. More than ever, the spotlight of the world is focused on the healthcare industry. Never before have we seen the speed of medical and technology innovation as well as advanced service delivery. Yet, while today is a time of growth, it is also a time of growing pains. From rising customer expectations on quality of care to privacy concerns with digitization to the disparities on access, the kimono is wide open on the healthcare battle of our generation. In comes my next guest. This week, we make a trip to the hill with America's top lobbyist, Alethea Jackson, making some billion-dollar moves. Alethea is VP of Federal Relations and Head of Advocacy for Walgreens, a global leader in retail and wholesale pharmacy, boasting one of the largest distribution networks, with more than 425 distribution centers delivering to more than 250,000 pharmacies, doctors, health centers, and hospitals each year in more than 20 countries. Alethea is expanding patient access to pharmacy services while advancing the role of pharmacy in the healthcare system. We unpack what it means to lead with your voice, the complex healthcare landscape, and how to build partnerships that matter. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen. Now let's get started. This week, it's been one that I've been looking forward to for some time now, ever since I met her. I have with me the tremendous honor of having Miss Alethea Jackson with us. Alethea, how are you today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So am I. So Alethea, you know, I've been thinking about you since our Power Play Blunch and your billion dollar moves. So really thrilled to really have you here with us to unpack it. And, you know, in classic billion dollar move style, we want to go real deep. We dig real deep and ask the hard questions that you may not have uh, been asked in, in this fashion before. So let's start with question number one. I, you know, I spoke to some of our mutual friends and I asked them, what is the first word that comes to mind when you when you think Alethea Jackson? And all of them said, without hesitation, driven. I want to ask you about that drive. Where did it come from? And was corporate America the destination? Wow, what a great question. I guess I would never have, have envisioned that, or I don't necessarily, that doesn't come top of mind to me. So it's interesting to hear it from others. And so I think it just really comes from the way I grew up. I grew up the youngest of five daughters. Mm-hmm. Both of my parents were committed to excellence. It was regardless of what you do, just give it your all and try and do the best you can. If you're helping someone try and be as helpful as you can, always try and have the best outcome. And that was just naturally ingrained in us. And so I think I take that approach with whatever I do, whether it's professionally or personally. And so that's probably where the drive really comes from. It's my parents. Love it. And was corporate America being, you know, gracing the covers of many magazines of the Hill, was that always in the cards for you in terms of where you saw yourself? 
So I, it was never a, um, a destination. I always knew I wanted to work in healthcare and I wanted to mm. help people. And so I wanted to have an impact and whether that was working in government or private industry or corporate, it, it was not a clear destination. I knew what I wanted to do, but where I would do it was not necessarily clear. Hmm. And, and why healthcare? If you can unpack that a little for us. So it probably stemmed from when I was in high school. My sister had an auto, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease after her first year in college. And she ended up in the hospital for four months. She went in just to, for a checkup and they admitted mm. her and she was there for four months. I visited her daily, but I saw the way one healthcare was administered in some instances in an unequitable way. We were lucky. We had, my grandmother was a nurse. My sister was in medical school, and so we had people who could be advocates on her behalf and who could ask the tough questions, and we were there visiting, so we could ensure she was getting good care, but everyone didn't have that, and I became fascinated with this healthcare system and how it ran, and, and that just carried through to my college years and then law school and professionally. Wow. And, you know, we have really an international audience here who may not have the cultural context of uh, where we are, especially, you know, today with the challenges of the pandemic in America as well. When you talk about just the way that healthcare was administered, and I know that I, because I've, 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 you know, understood your source of passion as well in, in many ways, the fact that your sister, you saw firsthand how she was treated potentially not in the best way. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what you're seeing on the ground as well and how, how this has surfaced in your work? And so it was really a disparity in care. And it was, you know, one could have been economically, the other was just having a support system around you. And I actually do think it's universal. I had a great mm. In, in law school to do a study abroad with healthcare systems in the UK and in Switzerland. And whether or not you had public, you were on a public health plan, or if you had the supplemental private insurance could also help drive the type of care that you received. The disparity is probably not as great as we see in the United States, but I think it de definitely does transfer globally on, on how people receive care and that it's not always equal. Right. And, you know, to this point of asking the right questions and advocating for yourself. You you were also vice president of federal relations at America's health insurance plan, advocating for millions of Americans. And you've been leaning into your voice and using your voice even since you were a young girl. How did you first find your voice? And how would you say that you've learned to really hone into it and leverage it? So I will say I had the good fortune of being born with my voice. It probably mm. was a good fortune for my parents, but blessed them that they encouraged it and allowed me to be who I was. And so I always had lots of opinions on things. And as long as I voiced them in a respectful manner and brought information with them, because my parents would always tease it out. Well, why? Why do you feel that way? Let's explain, explain, explain that to us a bit more. Explain what you would like or what you're requesting of us. And that is carried through and to, which has probably made me an advocate that I am. Yeah today and something I think that was again just instilled in me but then leaning into my voice too and I will say as you know as a woman and I was often the youngest person in the room when I started my career that ensuring that I was you know speaking if I was invited into a room it was for a reason and so being confident in that I had something of value to offer in, in my opinion or the insights that I was bringing and I had the good fortune of being mentored and working under people who were very supportive of me. 
Yeah, I love that. And, and speaking about value, though, and and how you you know found your voice and and really sharpened it, I guess, in, in some way to really advocate for things that you believed in and and using evidence is that I was tuning into your amazing CEO yesterday on the Today Show with Ross Brewer speaking about her own experiences. You know, as many times as you said, being the first and the only. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, your own career path. You know, was that the same case for you? And and if I may as well, this was a question that Ross Brewer was faced with. She was asked whether she was asked in, in her in her journey, whether she advanced because of her race and the color of her skin. What do you say to that? So I'll start with the, the first and only. And so that definitely is often or was often the case. Things are, are changing rapidly, which is good. Not quickly enough, but hopefully we'll get there um, soon. Mm-hmm. And so, I, again, I was the youngest. Um, I was usually the only African-American at that time in, in the room. And as far as has anyone sort of indicated that I got where I was because of my race. I've not had that particular experience, but I often get a lot of questions being a unicorn or seen as a unicorn Mm. in the room. So the questions usually present themselves are, did you go to private school? What do your parents do? What do your siblings do? And trying to understand why are you here? How did you get here? As opposed to questions that might be asked to others. And how do you then come back from that? What's the best response that you've sharpened over the years? Because I mean, you know, the reason I asked this, right? A lot of folks tuning in as well would have had similar experiences. I've, I've had that myself often being the unicorn in many rooms of, of finance where it's still very male dominated. How do you come back from being uh, seen or perceived in a way that you don't want to be? So, you know, you, uh, you answer the question as it's asked. It's probably been asked less frequently just because I'm a bit more known now in, at least in this circle in Washington. But you answer the question, but you just also own who you are and own that you are in this space. And I, mm-hmm. you can't get caught up in, in that aspect of it. I just move through it and continue to do what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and powering on. So talking about Washington, D.C., you mentioned that, you know, you've definitely built a name for yourself. I mean, there's uh, no lobbyist on the Hill that would not know uh, the name Alethea Jackson. And you've graced the cover of magazines that matter in D.C. And, and you know, I'm relatively new to the area, but this this focus on Washington, D.C. and the nexus of power and politics that I find very interesting. And I wanted to get your opinion out of curiosity, being in D.C. and really, you know, driving the circles and, and really bringing the good out of it. Right. How do you think about power? Wow, that's an interesting question. How do I think about power? I have to say, I don't I don't know that I think about power in probably the way or the people necessarily in D.C. in the way that people outside of Washington think about it because they see it as this very looming thing. I think in Washington, one, information is power. I'll say that. For me, I think data is power. And that's what I tend to use if I am in a conversation with someone, if I'm trying to convince someone of something or are trying to build a partnership. And so using that and using the experience that we have and what lobbyists bring to the table is that we 
are experts in our industry. And so we know what's happening on the ground, wherever it is that our businesses are and can bring that to the table as far as sharing information, sharing sort of perspective on an industry or the customers or patients that we're serving. And so I would say that that is some form of, of a power if we wanted to use that term. Right. Love it. And, and I think more than ever, it's, it's, it's important to, to have data in your hands and to use that and, and to be evidence based. Right. So talking now, um, turning now to the topic at hand, healthcare, the battle of our generation is one that you deal with every day in your work. You know, it's been said that healthcare and its players are now faced with a lot of pressure, especially, you know, being front and center. I mean, Walgreens, we were just talking about this. Not many people know this, but. 80% of Americans have Walgreens as a drugstore within a five-mile radius of them. And that means that you're touching the lives of millions and have also the pressure of what they call the quadruple aims of healthcare, improving costs, improving outcomes, improving patient experience and clinical experience. And yet, you know, despite us coming at a time of rapid innovation with the vaccines being rolled out so quickly, there are challenges. Paint a little bit of a landscape for us here in terms of what you're seeing in your work, in terms of what you're battling with, what are the challenges and what are the opportunities? So I would say that, you know, right now, truly, as we think of healthcare, the, the challenge is to get us through the pandemic. The challenge is to get every American vaccinated. The president put out a new goal earlier this week of having 70% of Americans vaccinated by July 4th. I think we're at a little bit over 40% currently. And so the challenge is how do we reach those individuals? How do we address where hesitancy or indifference may persist? How do we dig deep into community? And that's what you really do have to be in relationship and community at this point in order to, to reach people. We, we done a huge um, effort in getting out the vaccine both in our stores, going locally, literally into community spaces, whether those are churches, mason lodges, other sort of public uh, local facilities that people use in communities. So the challenge, I think, is, again, really getting us back into good public health through getting people vaccinated and so reaching people. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. And I know you chair the very important initiative that I believe you pushed uh, forward as well, uh, being chair of the Vaccine Equity Task Force. Can you tell us a little bit about what the goal is here with your task force and what surprised you in your work on the ground? You know, you've got boots on the ground. I know you just came back from Ohio as well. What surprised you and, and what else are we faced with here in terms of really getting to the end goal? So the COVID vaccine equity task force that we stood up as we started to think about our role in administering the vaccine wanted to make sure that we did it in an equitable fashion as we looked at the populations or communities that were disproportionately impacted. And so wanted to put some concerted effort around that education, around addressing hesitancy, around providing greater access to the vaccine, as well as removing some barriers to care. Because what we know is that even when care is available, sometimes there are barriers that keep people from accessing it. And so looking at the best data at the time and really building our partnerships around that. And so we've done a lot of localized community partnerships in order to reach sort of underserved, medically underserved and high social vulnerability index populations. So those are populations that live in close proximity to each other or close quarters that lack transportation, that mm. provide access. And so really, again, 
personalizing this in a way that that helps to drive people to the vaccine as well as just make them more comfortable around that. And so hyper, I like to think of it as hyper-localized um, efforts. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, you you mentioned hesitancy and skepticism is abound, of course, not only in the in America but also across the globe because never before have we seen something like this and the fact that things have come to uh, fruition so quickly, right? How how do you address skepticism and how are you thinking about the hesitancy in different communities right now? So the first, excuse me, the first step is to listen. Everyone wants to be heard and everyone has the right to ask questions. And so to really listen to the questions that are being asked, because they're not all the same. Some of them are different based on, you know, people's experiences. And then to provide the best data around the efficacy of the vaccine. And so that's the, at least the approach we've taken and provide as much information as possible so that people can make the best informed decision uh, for themselves around the vaccine. Yeah. And, and, you know, talking about communities of color as well, and this is, you know, DEI is a topic that I believe both of us also gravitated towards each other because of that, of the fact that we so believe in um, equity and that we must, you know, be conscientious about this. How are you thinking about, you know, the fact that, and, and, and I know in, in uh, certain instances you've spoken about this, the fact that sometimes, you know, the fact that we're different, we present differently. And when, in this time of something so new, right, where data is still limited in, in some way, how, how do you speak about that to really ensure that the right communities are getting to what they need to and, and are getting to a point of conviction and confidence in what we're doing here? So one of the best sort of approaches to that is also partnerships. And so we really do lean into community-based partnerships with other trusted organizations that are doing the work every day. Also having a diverse workforce that is reflective of the communities that we're serving as well. What data showed is that people want to hear from healthcare professionals who look like them, who have their similar experiences. So having that diversity of workforce, having those community-based partnerships that are reflective of each of the various communities that we are, because they do present differently, look differently. They just have different sort of cultural beliefs that also may impact their uh, impression of the vaccine. And so really taking each as it presents. Yeah. And you talk about partnerships here. You know, I know you've been a big proponent of partnerships. It's been the lifeblood of of your work in many ways. And, And, you know, in this time, of course, we see the public-private partnership, right? The role of government, the role of corporates like yourself, and the role of community in, in approaching and, and creating outreach programs that will enable us all to move forward. And we talked a little bit about the power circle in Washington, D.C. and politics at this time a little bit as well. I want, I want to get your opinion, actually, you know, as we're thinking about this, how do we separate our goal, right, and government from politics of the day to really not make this, uh, as as we've heard in many uh, instances on the news uh, these days in the last week, that this has become a political issue. And especially as a top lobbyist that is working on this, how do you separate politics from government when, you know, we, we all need to move forward together? So the government plays a great role. And while we sometimes see it as synonymous with politics, it's not, that's not necessarily the case. The government also plays an important role in public health, and we're in the middle of a public health crisis. And the science 
the science and the data is the data separate and aside for, from any political viewpoints. And so keeping a focus on that, on the, again, importance of public health, but also global, the globalization of this too. It's not just limited to within our borders of the United States, which is what we've seen with this. And so broader public health even. Right. And yeah, I, I think that's always going to be a challenge, right? And, and it's how, how you navigate that and really create that understanding. And, and you've definitely been a strong voice in this. Now, I want to turn to the topic of, you know, what next for healthcare. And in January, CVS launched a pilot program. So CVS, your competitor, launched a pilot program to offer mental health treatment within their stores, an extension to CVS Health Hub, right? So it's it's really about how can we uh, reach out to the community and p- potentially, as you said, uh, reduce the barrier to access here. How are you thinking about the future of just everything that's happening with retail and drugstores right now and how we're innovating in, in this time? Sure. And I would like to say, you know, we've been in this space for for a while now. There were a couple of years ago articles around the retailization of healthcare, And Mm. as I read it and what I think we interpreted as is the as you look at the one taking the experience of retail in customer. Right. And so what we always look at, what is our customer experience? What is our customer journey? But transferring that to what is the patient experience and patient journey? Because the patient really has to sit at the center of healthcare, And if they are don't like the experience and experience they are having, they're not going to engage with the healthcare system. And we're not going to see them until they're at a point of crisis, which it does not have a good impact on outcomes, on cost, and we may not see them or adherence to any regimen that they're given. And so when you develop and design at least healthcare around the patient, around their experience, for example, how do we have a hyper sort of, how, how do we increase engagement with the patient? How do we provide care in a localized fashion that is closer to the patient and that they are more likely to take and how do we keep engagement. And so those are things we're looking at. We actually piloted a program in Chicago and looked at a particular disease state, looked at diabetes, and we had an advanced engagement model where we did intense outreach um, to this population of patients. And what we saw is that we were able to drive better refills and adherence with respect to their medication um, regimen. And so beginning to, again, put the patient at the center of it, and we have that experience from what we do in retail, and to pull that through into how we are even administering healthcare is a great opportunity. Yeah. And what are the other trends? I mean, you know, um, you, you talk about personalization, right? At the end, they being hyper-local and putting, I, I think at the end, they, uh, the customer front, front and center in, in this whole journey of, of what we're offering them as sort of the providers. How are you thinking about just the, the trends of digital health and everything that this pandemic and this time has really compressed, right? I mean, we were not long ago talking about telehealth and yet there was still hesitancy and skepticism, but now, you know, it's become the norm. How are you thinking about some of these trends and what are you excited most by? So you bring up a great point as you look at digitalization. And and yes, people were 
may have been less inclined, but I think most of us have done some form of telehealth visit over the last year, if not numerous forms, as we've been seeing our physicians, people have definitely become more comfortable with that. We've always had a ability, a capability in our app for you to, let's say, chat with the pharmacist 24 hours. We are currently expanding that and providing additional opportunities under our find care. And that's what we've used to help people find access to to COVID-19 testing, now the vaccine, but also find access to other forms of care. And so digital, digital will continue to play a robust role in healthcare and helping people navigate, find care, again, the televisits as well. And so I think you'll continue to see those integrated platforms built out and utilized even more. Yeah. And, and what, what are you most excited by in terms of what this has sped up? I, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing customer adoption, right? But from an innovation standpoint, and you're front and center with dealing with some of the bills that are being passed that will affect the way that we approach healthcare, right? What, what are you most excited by right now? And what can we look forward to in terms of the next era of healthcare that this has opened up? So, you know, I think we have really hit it on the head with respect to digitalization, patient experience, and there's also been a more focus on health equities as well. And so we'll continue to see those and see the metrics of how are we driving over better overall population health, because population health is personal health and personal health is population health. And so we will continue to see those as I look at apps um, and look at a number of the sort of startup companies. Again, it really is around digital health in a very personal way. Great. Well, I see my guests coming on here right now. And this is one of my favorite segments where we get some of your fans, Alethea, that have been doing some research about you. I mean, they're in similar lines of work. And I wanted to bring up my very first guest. Nora Fifa from Malaysia. Afifa is currently the head of governance and integrity of Plus Malaysia, Malaysia's largest highway operator and part of Lean in Malaysia's board of advisors, which we worked together on for years. Now, Afifa, how are you doing? And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. I just broke fast, got a sip of water, coffee, and very excited. I was hearing Alethea throughout. And I think even though we're in different parts of the world, there's a lot of things that resonates and gravitates towards us here. Great. So I want to really pass it over to you to ask Alethea your question. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Alethea, I think what you're saying just now really resonated with me. I literally just got vaccinated like two days um, ago in Malaysia and the vaccine rollout has been slow. And what I'm realizing within our communities, um, at least in this part of Asia, and I, what I'm reading as well is quite similar in the States, where there's a lot of hesitancy that could also be aided by either you know, fake news or inaccurate information being spread out. And I've been to the States before. I've literally, I can see Walgreens every like a few kilometers that I walk in. So I do know that it's a big um, company. Now, the question is as corporates, and of course you do have you know, certain responsibilities. What's your view on the corporate's responsibility to educate society, uh, particularly in managing fake news or inaccurate news, considering the fact you, you've talked about that the approach moving forward is to be like retail based where you know we need to be able to relate to the moms and pops in order to I, I think do the work that we do. So what's your thoughts on that? 
Well, thank you. And thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and thanks for the question. And so for us, you know, I, I the corporate role, a role we're taking are putting out as much information as we can. And so putting out factual information for people to consume. We have, do that under a number of platforms. We do our use our social media. And so whether that's our LinkedIn Live, where we've been doing chats around the, the virus, around the vaccine and testing with our chief medical officer, our head of pharmacy, that really talk through the questions that we are hearing um, from our patients and from our customers. We also use various forms of social media and then continue to put information out via our website as well as through our partners. And so really the strongest role that we are able to play is to continue to have information out, have it in a way that people can consume it. And that is sort of culturally appropriate as well to the various groups that we're working with. Uh, thanks, Alitia. I think that's really interesting, right? At least in this part of the country, pharmacy companies doesn't really take that proactive approach to educate uh, merely they're quite hardcore on this selling part. So I think that's a really interesting approach that you're, you, you just shared. Uh, my second question would be on your role as a lobbyist. And I think in this part of the world, we, we may not be so familiar, but we've read about the concept of lobbying, you know, uh, the fact that lobbyists occupy and walk around Capitol Hill and advocate certain, you know, outcomes that you know, that, is, that could also be aligned with the interests of the company. Um, now there's been a lot of talk, at least from what I'm seeing here in Asia, the talk about inequality, inequity in terms of healthcare, uh, especially um, in the States. And there could be competing interests between healthcare providers or healthcare companies or pharmacies, for example, against um, the government's interests. Now, I just wanted to just pick your brain um, in this kind of instance. How do you manage conflict, conflicting interests and how do you manage certain capitalistic views? In, but ensuring that you also don't stray too much from what you see that certain strong principles. I think that's a very interesting question. I've always wanted to ask a lobbyist in this instance. Thanks. So one is um, ensuring that you are representing an interest that you believe in that is, you know, consistent with your your values uh, and your moral compass. And I am have the good fortune of working for a great company that's passionate about public health, that's passionate about serving medically underserved areas that are in greatest need, and just be really being that place uh, that people walk through every day, regardless of where they live in the country, and that are there to serve the communities that we sit in. And so I don't necessarily find it to be a hard balance. And as I mentioned earlier, too, we are, you know, presenting the data. What I was told early in my career is that regardless of who you are trying to um, convince of something and where they sit, you always want to provide the best um, information, the best data in order to protect your reputation, the reputation of the company that you are representing and then people will make their own decisions, but they will respect that you have brought them truthful and useful information. And so just always continue to do that. Great. Thanks, Afifa. And of course, you know, Afifa is all about making sure governance and integrity is kept in check. So, uh, you know, I love your, your angle of the question then and definitely a challenge, right? I think as we continue on in this race to beat the pandemic and its ripple effects, I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities that have come up as well, but I definitely need to ensure that we're uh, continuing on ethical lines there. Thanks, Afifa. And thanks for joining us from Malaysia. Thank you very Great. much. Well, 
Thanks, Afifa. Now we have our next guest uh, who comes from the United States calling in from Texas. We have Runway Chong, my brother from another mother who was the senior strategic advisor for healthcare and strategy uh, transformation at Blue Cross Blue Shield and is deep in the partnerships world as you are, Alethea, and is now deputy general counsel at Medulin. Over to you, Runway. Good to see you. Hi, good to see y'all. Good morning or good evening, wherever you may be. Uh, Alethea, I love that you talked about the localization of healthcare. I truly believe all healthcare is local at the end of the day. I, 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 would, I would love to hear um, what you're most fired about in terms of reimagining healthcare's front door. So, and I love that you say healthcare's front door, because I think that is the, that is the important part, right? How do you make healthcare also approachable to people because we do want people to be accessing the system. And so what am I most excited about? I think healthcare, I think the journey we've been on the last year has taught us or reiterated the need to make care approachable to, again, it has to be localized. And so what we've seen are so many pop-up clinics that are happening, and that's with respect to the vaccine, but hopefully those can continue to happen another way. Years ago, we used to do a bus that we took around into communities and we parked in those communities that had the highest propensity for, you know, these chronic diseases. And so we would do testing and literally it was okay, I can stop in in 15 minutes and have my blood pressure checked and my glucose level checked. And maybe we end up back in a place um, like that, that we are driving care closer to people. So that's what I'm excited. There are some opportunities there. I think we're seeing some models that are being used around the vaccine that will be pulled through as we move through the pandemic, but just into generally how do we care for people and how do we make sure accessing the system? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I went to school on the south side of Chicago, so I'm, I'm, f- I'm very familiar with some of your initiatives and some of your pilots. I always say everyone has a strategy, but it's not until you get on the tennis court and start hitting the ball back and forth that you really learn the data, the evidence generated. Is there any particular pilots or programs that that you see as innovative or transformative that y'all are tackling for this year or in the next few quarters? So one of them is what I I mentioned earlier with respect to doing this sort of advanced engagement of care with patient segments and those especially who are living with chronic disease to see how we can drive better adherence and better outcomes. And that's high touch. So identifying proactively, reaching out, calling, engaging, and creating sort of an engagement plan with those patients. And so I think that's exciting and that's being piloted to see how we are able to improve outcomes. And what we saw was the sort of 77% increase as we looked at two-week refills and adherence. And so that, and you take that data and see how you can apply it to other chronic disease states and to broader populations of, of people, I think that's a great opportunity there. And I also think, again, some of the mobilization or localized um, clinic we're doing will serve as a pilot as we look at the data and then see the come of that. Just last week, we ran a value-based care reimbursement webinar and for digital therapeutics. And depending on who's the audience, I always ask, which of the six P's of the stakeholders in healthcare is the hardest to engage for partnerships? 
whether it's physicians, providers, plan sponsors, payers, patients, pharma. In your experience, where, where have you found a lot of success in your partner strategies? And where do you still see roadblocks or hurdles in, in terms of trying to ink the deal or execute the pilot or program? So, you know, I would say there probably are still some roadblocks or hurdles in silos. And so one of the things that we have been looking at really is how do we bring pharmacy and pharmacists further into the care delivery team? One of the things that even COVID has shown us as we've been called into action to either do the vaccine, to do testing or other forms of care is that we need to utilize every healthcare provider we have in the system to the fullest extent of their sort of training. And so I think we have to, and we've recognized we have a shortage. And so we've now called all of these people sort of back in, either into back into practice to vaccinate, or we are leaning more heavily on other providers. And so what we need to do is actually ensure that we are utilizing everyone to the, again, full extent of their practice. For us, we continue to say pharmacists are here, we're in community and we can do more. And so utilize us in a very permanent way. Good questions as always. And I know we could go on and on with Alethea. This is really like right up your alley. So glad you joined us. Thanks, Renway. Good to see you. All right. Well, now we are going into the next segment. And this is my favorite one where we go into rapid fire, billion dollar questions, uh, eight questions where you react to the question with a succinct answer. First thing that comes to mind. So we want to go deep into the Alethea behind the scenes. So question number one, Alethea, when you think of the word successful, who comes to mind and why? So top of mind, Robert Smith. And Robert Smith, because of the legacy that he is building. So, I mean, he has done great things professionally, but his endowments in support of whether it's students or other causes that he believes in, just building such a strong legacy of of giving and philanthropy. That's a great one. Definitely a a good one to look up to. Common misconceptions about you, Alethea? That I am, I think, super serious or formal. I, you know, I love to have fun. I try and find fun in my work every day and with my team and love to laugh. And so definitely I'm not as serious sometimes as people take me. I like it. And I know you secretly dance in your living room as well, right? To break up the day. And and I'm picking that tip up from you. (laughs) Highest high. What is your highest high, Alethea? My highest high has been to see people's faces as they get the vaccine. It's literally been sort of the restoration of their life as they as they know it or have known it. And so it's incredible each time I'm at a clinic and I see someone who's walking away after they've gotten the vaccine. Oh, that is so true, Alethea. I mean, I can only tell you how emotional I felt when I got my first vaccine and I'm getting my second one after this. So really, really excited for that. And I will be uh, sending you a selfie on the tears yes. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but but yeah, thanks for making this all happen. I mean, we, we all are so grateful for, for your leadership here. Lowest low, what is your lowest low? So my lowest low is when I don't think I am having an impact. And so when I think, wow, this, this isn't working, is this the correct strategy? Am I not reaching people? And, and that can vary as to what the specific thing may be. But those, that's when I get a bit low. Can you give a specific example? 
I knew you were going to ask me that. Ah, you know it. <laughs> Even with um, as reaching out to communities now around the vaccine. And so, you know, I probably had a day where I'm just like, is this, is this really, is it working? Is this particular tactic working? And so, and I, with the, you know, within probably 72 hours, it was confirmed that, okay, this is, this is the right path. Um, even if you retool it, this is the right path, but just, so that was, I think, an experience that I had. Okay. I'm going to let you off the hook there for yeah. that one, <laughs> but I'll come back to you with it, with a more specific one next time in private over drinks. Best advice you've been given, Alethea. The best advice I've been given was by a, a former CEO of mine, a previous job, and it was to always have a seat at the table. And nothing happens around the perimeter of a room. If you've been invited into a meeting, have a seat at the table. That's where the opinions will be shared and the decisions will be made. I like that. Lean in all the way, as we say. Favorite tool hack for productivity? So I have two. One is going to be really weird. It's um, a timer. It's literally a timer. Mm on my phone that I give myself a designated time to work on something without interruption. And because I know there's a start and stop, it gives me the freedom to just lean in and be completely there. And the other is the silence feature for your pop-ups so that or priority so that I can prioritize what pops up on my screen, but knowing I don't have to see every incoming email. Yep. Yep. I, I love that one. Your biggest fear? Failure. Failure. What does failure mean to you? Failure means, and I'm going to have a girlfriend who's going to yell at me. She's like, there's no <laughs> failure. You just retool. It's a friend that we share. But failure, I guess failure would mean, if I looked at it that way, failure would mean not one, not accomplishing the goal, but also not getting the lesson out of that because we can, it can not work for you, but there's a lesson to be learned that can help you move forward. If I'm not able to see what that lesson is. Hmm. That's so it, it, it feels like a wasted event, so to speak. Yes. Okay. Okay. Final one. And, and I might throw in a bonus question as well. How do you know you've made it, Alethea? What's the vision for Alethea looking out? So do we ever know? Is there, I mean, is, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's ever, if it's a nation <laughs> you reach. So I, I don't know that I know I've made it. If I've, and I have used this word so many times, but literally if I have impacted, if I've touched someone, if I, if someone has benefited from something I have done and whether that's my work or whether that's someone else seeing what I do and saying, I can do this, or I want to do this, or you've created an opportunity for me to do something. So that's, that's making it, I guess, as you, as you start to build that, that legacy for yourself and that means of helping others. Okay. And this was the bonus question, but I know we, we think a lot about this at this time, which is taking care of our own selves and our own mental health, right? It's, it's easy to look out into all the challenges that we have to deal with and feel like we're making impact, as you say, for others. But how about for ourselves? What do you do to take care of yourself, Alethea? So one of the things I do, and I swear by this, um, is prep works. And so it's, it's just a way of, it's a sort of an active meditation that provides greater clarity. It's good health-wise, but it's great mentally and emotionally, especially when you want to release. We don't realize how much we hold our breath and how we don't really um, sort of breathe as we should. And so it 
physically takes you through that, but then emotionally and mentally, it provides greater clarity. And so doing breath works, even if I just do it for a couple of minutes a day. Oh, love that. And I know uh, the other thing I was going to share that I love as a gift from you that I, I hold clear, close to my heart is this book. Every day, you know, I, I know you read. So it's basically for folks who, who are looking. It's the book of everyday gratitude. And Alethea does recommend that we all read a page a day, which I do. And, and it's been super helpful. So thank you for that. Well, Alethea, this has been really been a power hour where we really talk everything uh, from the future of healthcare, right? The challenges in just, you know, what you're faced with and corporate America's view on the healthcare battle of our generation. And as well, I talked a little bit about your version of failure and your deepest fears. So thanks so much for spending time with us. I hope everyone took away something special today as I know I did. And we'll be looking forward to the next session, but be sure to like, share and subscribe and we'll see you again next week. But Alethea, thank you so much and uh, enjoy your Mother's Day. I know you're headed off soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.